Hello and welcome to The Dollop. This is an American history podcast. Each week, I read a story to my friend. Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is about. Gareth Reynolds. Yeah. Who has no idea what the topic is about. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. I don't know why, you know, I mean, this thing is starting to take on a life of its own now. Where It's not even, you know, it's not really just an intro. It's just kind of this weird... Yeah, this weird line that you just keep rereading different ways. He has no idea oh, boy, okay. what the topic's about. Oh, boy. God, you want to look at a dude? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> people say this is funny? Not Gary Guerra. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. You are Queen Fakie of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle. And do what? Pray. No. I see done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> hey, girl. Hi. We haven't even said hi officially. Hi. How are you? Hi. Um. Yeah. You just got here, and you gotta. We gotta blow through it, and you gotta run. Blow uh, through it. A couple of things. <laughs> oh, Jesus. 1970, Mexico. Well, that's just, that's not very specific. <laughs> The city of Nuevo Laredo, Laredo, Nueva Laredo. Oh boy, Laredo. Okay, what is that? What is it? Is that a cranberry and vodka? Yeah. Okay. For years, the members. What is that noise? I don't know. There's like a bang every now and then. For years, the members of the familial clans, the Gaitans and the Reyes Prenudes, competed in the city for control of the narcotics traffic. The oh Gaitans had most of the pot market cornered. And the Reyes Pernetas operated from a ranch in the desolate country southwest of the city where one could exchange anything of value for smack, coke, reds, heroin, anything. Reds? Yeah, that's speed, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, reds. One U.S. customs officer penetrated the compound and returned with stories of machine guns, battlefield mortars, and mustachioed cartridge-belted bandoliers who looked like a lost battalion of Zapatistas. Wow. I like that. That's real. <laughs> that is real. Around the early 1970s, the Gaitans and the Reyes Pernetas uh, flared into open warfare. A three-year battle left nearly 100 dead. Mexican, this is going to be about drugs. Uh, uh, if I, I'm getting the vibe that there'll be drugs in this So one. there'll be just be a lot of dead people we'll just brush on through. Okay, great, cool. Mexican law enforcement tried to crack down but ran into obstacles. For instance... Uh, they had to cancel a raid because they couldn't come up with the 500 advanced Hertz rent-a-car wanted for each station wagon they needed. Wait, I'm sorry. What? They Mexican law enforcement had to they rent cars? cancel a raid. <laughs> oh, wait, because they're, wait, they're, they're going undercover and they're just bringing 50 Hertz cars? <laughs> 50 cars in general is not a good cover. Well, it wasn't 50 cars. They just... For every car they needed, they had to put down a $500 deposit. Oh, and they couldn't afford... And they couldn't afford it. So they're not just... They're just not a good... They're not a wealthy police station. Or try Avis. Yeah. Enterprise. Enterprise is probably better. Priceline it. Uh, then the clans stopped fighting each other and started gunning for the police. Police Commissioner Perales was assassinated... The Mexican government went at the clan's full force, and the jail, jails began to swell with Gaitans and Reyes Prunetas. On August 26, 1971, a customs, U.S. Customs stopped a car. Inside were 234 pounds of heroin mm. and two phone numbers. 
The numbers were for Jesus Carrasco Santoy of San Antonio, one of the leaders of the Dons. The Dons were a San Antonio-based drug operation who boasted that they were tougher than the mafia and would kill to prove it. Okay. Okay, yeah. This is one of those ones where I wish I was writing things down. Do you want a piece of paper? I mean, okay. (laughs) Hold on. We'll get you a piece of paper. All right. There are going to be a lot of names. Uh Okay, so we've got the Dons, the Gaytans, and the Reyes Piraeus. Okay. And the Piraeus are more hardcore drugs. Okay, great. Santoy was a balding, pot-bellied, stuttering, and paranoid man. <laughs> How could he not be? That's a great leader <laughs> yeah. for a drug cartel. Paran- well, I always like when someone's paranoid and then does drugs. <laughs> You're like, oh, cool. What's it like when paranoid does paranoid? He was often seen in disguises and once boarded up the windows of his house while he was being investigated. Which is a sign that you have nothing to hide. Yeah, that's not a good move. No, it's a terrible move. Uh, Yeah, leave. Your only real move is leave. Don't leave shit laying out, like heroin. Boarding up your house. So, Santoy was more of a broker in the Don's gang, and he was careful. Others did the dirty work. One of the prime investigators of the Dons was a 290-pound sergeant with a tough guy scowl named Bill Wheelbacker. Wheelbacker? Wheelbacker. Sure. He was called the Fat Man on the streets of San Antonio. He it's a carried... Fun nickname. It is a good nickname. I always like it better when a fat guy's called Tiny. <laughs> you know? Go the other way. Or Little Bill. Yeah, Little Bill. He's yeah. big, yeah. He carried all his weight on his shoulders, chest, and stomach. He was said to look like an Idaho potato on toothpicks. Oof. He was known for wearing silk suits and diamond rings. I can't picture anything other than a potato in a silk suit with diamond rings right now. <laughs> well, that's classic cop wear. It's the 70s were so fucking weird. Yeah. You can tell the 70s was fueled by cocaine. Uh, seriously. Brash decision making. His jackets hung off his frame like circus tents. He was the best cop in San Antonio, and he was not big on kind words. His parents were, his partners were Harry Carpenter and Tommy Lauderdale. He won't come up again. Sure. Yeah, don't worry about them. I'm not worried about them. Bill had his eyes on the Dons and their entire operation. At the time, Tony De La Garza was a mule who had been the victim of a heroin bust a year earlier, but had beaten the rap because of an unwarranted search. But the Dons didn't know what he had said while he was held in jail. And on September 17th, De La Garza's body was found. Yeah. See, that's the thing, right? If you're in jail under the, like, you have to be nervous to get out almost. Oh, no. If you're, in, if you're part of a drug cartel and you're in jail, you're just fucked. Yeah. Because no, then you get out and you're like, hey, I'm out. The first thing you do is just stab someone and be like, hey, hey, open this gate. Open this goddamn gate. A grand jury was set up to look at the possibilities of the Don's organized crime in San Antonio. That's when Congressional Representative Harry B. Gonzalez told the press, they've got some guys in Nueva Laredo, God, I keep fucking that up, guys in Nueva Laredo who think they can organize a mafia structure there. Immediately, the Don's cleared out of San Antonio. Wow. So the fucking congressman, who actually was a great congressman, but he was just like, yeah, but he's down there fucking some shit up. We're going to look at him. And everyone's like, see ya. Bye. That was a tell. Uh, The Dons also put out a hit on Gonzalez. Hmm? The man who had apparently issued the threat and the hit against the congressman was Frederico Carrasco Gomez. Fred was born in 1940 in San Antonio and raised in the barrio known as Little Mexico. 
He rose up the ranks of the Dons, and when he was just 18, he killed a man outside of a dance hall, stole a getaway car, and fled to Del Rio. Jesus. He was arrested and went to prison for murder. Because it turns out when you kill someone in front of a dance hall, there's people around. Yeah. Uh, he was paroled in 1961 after just two years. I, I, I really... I, why? How? I, I never... Yeah, I never understand this, but this happens a lot. You get... I In our country, you get... Like, murder, you get out of jail quick, but if you do something like drugs or other stuff, you... Because this next conviction, and in April of 1962... He received eight years for the possession, possession and sale of heroin. <laughs> that really is a, that's a messed, up, messed yep. up way to do it. No, we I, When I used to work uh, construction for my brother, one time I was working with this dude, and he was like, he literally goes, yeah, but then I got out of jail. I go, what'd you go to jail for? And he goes, murder. <laughs> and I was like, what? I did not expect, like, the story was crazy, uh, but that was the answer. I was like, cool. All right. That's cool, man. Okay, I'll see you. You got a murder. All right. Cool. Um, so Fred served five years of that sentence in Atlanta before being paroled in 1967. The only lesson Fred learned from his time in prison was don't get caught. He leapfrogged over the mules and shotguns and the dons and quickly made his way to the top. By the time... Investigator Bill got his hands on those two phone numbers. Fred was the number two man in the Dons. Wow. So he's he climbed it. He's a climber, It's a real man. little Cinderella story. He takes care of business. Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. Fred always wore 245s. Okay. He always had a tie and a Windsor knot and a stylish jacket. He was often with his wife, Rosa, a slim, attractive woman. Investigators began to smother Fred, showing up everywhere he was and, and the rest of the Dons. Fred decided to move to Nuevo Laredo. Well, that's okay, but if you're him, I mean, don't you just don't you want to like keep up the front like they won't beat you? So you I mean, all they're doing is showing up. But I think he needs a place to to really run his operation and if they're everywhere he so is. So it's not just annoying. He's like, Mwah. I mean, you got to bring the heroin in, you got to move it, you know. Sure. I mean, I mean, I know. I know that. You know. I know how that is. There he brought, operated out of a home that looked like a shack on the outside and a Playboy retreat on the inside. So he had a Playboy shack? Yeah. It looks like a shack. And then on the inside, it's, it's full all, of bunnies and got a bunch of yeah, pools there's, there's and bunnies swans. and swans. Yeah. A, like, an old man in a robe. Yeah. An old weird <laughs> pervert who's like, I can't get my dick hard anymore, but I watch them. Uh, he, uh, Fred still moved back and forth across the border. Police started putting together that Fred had ordered number three Don... Pete Guzman to kill Tony De La Garza. De La Garza was an old associate of Fred's and had been present when Fred killed the man in front of the dance hall. But no one was safe around Fred. Next, a car was found near the airport with three bullet holes in the driver's window and a bloody shoe. Santoy's fingerprint was in the blood. He told investigators he had a bloody in nose. The blo- oh, my God. He told investigators he had a bloody nose, but investigator Bill said Fred wanted to kill everybody in the country, and Santa wanted to get the hell out of there. Fred was looking to become the number one Don. Wait, who's the number one Don at this time? Santoy. Okay, so Santoy's the number one. Oh, okay. But before Santoy could leave, police swarmed in and caught him with 40 pounds. Of? Lactose. The milk sugar used to cut heroin. Okay. But they still put him in jail. For lactose possession? I think that it's... You're guilty of being too good of a dad. <laughs> Get in the slammer, buddy. 
Yeah, we caught this guy with a bunch of formula on him. This son of a bitch wants to feed babies everywhere. Yeah, good luck with doing that when you're behind bars, fuckface. So he was arrested, and suddenly users started dying all around San Antonio from shooting up with powerful heroin. Jesus. There's nothing to cut it with. (laughs) (laughs) Out on Boyd. Boyd. Out on Bond, Santoy got his trial postponed for health reasons. A month later, he vanished. The next time he was seen was in Spain with another Don who had shot his way out of the Webb County, Texas jail. Wow. Most members of the Dons were busted or dead by 1972. In Nuevo Laredo, Fred was working on solidifying his business along with his number two, Pete Guzman. And he was working a thin line by being allowed to stay with the other two drug cartels there. In February, Fred's gang killed the Federale. Then a member of the Pruneta gang was killed in another shootout while with Fred's crew. The Mexican government sent police chief Everardo Perales to clean up the city. He was making a dent when he was shot with a submachine gun. Hmm. Four bullets entered in a tight pattern around his left temple while he was driving a car in broad daylight. Wow. That's that is, impressive. That's balls. That's like that, to be able to hit that four times while he's moving. Submachine gun. Yeah, that sounds like it was a contest. Yeah, yeah. He probably got a big stuffed bear after that. They're like, <laughs> "Get out of here, you little squirt!" <laughs> the Mexicans sent squads of law enforcement into the area to finally end it. The American government pressured the Mexican government to allow American hit squads of federal agents to pursue the gangs of Nuevo Laredo. Fred took his gang south to the Mexican interior. That's when the number three Don. Pete Guzman decided to start running his mouth. Oh, he had one of the mouths on him, did he? In what may be the dumbest drug cartel move of all time, Guzman started telling everyone he was in charge and Fred was his lieutenant. (laughs) It's like the relationship of Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall in Coming to America. (laughs) But it's just like, that's blow. You're on blow or you don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Because there's no reason to... Well, you just know that's not going to work out. What do you mean? It might work out great. No, it's... The, oh, boy. By the way, you you just did the old switcheroo. What? You were, play, you were on my side the second that I fell into that trap. You were like, oh, no, it's going to work out. This dude is dead in within the next two sentences. Well, Guzman stole a passport and returned to San Antonio to check in on some of his business interests. One. He was then found with 45 bullet holes in him. Two. <laughs> only in his pants slippers and a bathrobe in a ditch. What? <laughs> That's not how you go on a night walk. No, it is not how you go on a night walk. Something tells me he wasn't out on the. Sh- he wasn't near you the think, ditch. You don't think he was? I think he was some. I think he was inside somewhere. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> on September twentieth, nineteen seventy-two, Federales broke into Fred's gang headquarters and found two hundred thirteen pounds of heroin. Fred was upset that his wife Rosa had also been arrested. To protest, he tried to jump out a window. Then he held a sliver of gas, gas, sliver of glass against his throat threatening suicide for five hours while his lawyer came in and negotiated. Eventually, Rosa was released. That is how you fucking do it right there. Isn't that the shit? That's how you fucking roll. Yeah. You just just have Hold yourself hostage. The lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) The lawyer's like, all right, just act like you've been here before, buddy. No problem. What my client is trying to say with the glass up against his throat is that uh, he thinks his wife was brought in on unfair conditions. I'll fucking do it, motherfuckers. All right, Fred. Uh, five hours. Jesus. After all, they're like, okay, I, look, I just want to go home. Yeah, we'll let her go. It's 5 p.m. We'll let her go. 
No one knows why was Bill why investigator Bill was in Guadalajara, but he showed up at the jail. Hmm. But that's out of his jurisdiction. A little bit. Okay. Police looked at his name on the police reports they had found in Fred's possession at his house, right? So uh-huh. Fred's got these police reports scattered around sure. about him, and Bill's name is on them. Uh-huh. And not wanting any ch- to take any chances, the Federales locked him up in a cell. Okay. With Fred. Wait. 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 Right, so... They, they, who, they liked... Investigator Bill. And Fred in a cell together. Yeah. So it's just your classic game of snake and mouse. <laughs> well, at this point, they think that Bill's in on it, because right? Because all crops are, cops are corrupt down there. Yeah. Right? So they're like, well, oh, this guy's on the reports. Just put him in the jail with the guy. And he's like, how you doing, man? I never thought I'd be glad to see you, said Fred, to uh, the U.S. Geez. cop. He was like, listen, Fred, can we? All right, now hold on a second, Fred. Can we be, can we be bros about this? You want to shoot the shit? Fred didn't Let's th- talk about toilet etiquette. Fred didn't think he was going to make it out alive. The day before, Fred's brother Robert had gone into a cell n- nearby without his belt. Then he was found strangled by his own belt. Hmm. So that's like a magic trick. That's ta-da. He went in without a belt, and he died with a belt. It's magic. That's not. But that's not a. <laughs> Fred cried over the death of his brother in front of Bill. When Bill returned to Texas. Wow, I'm shocked Bill returned to Texas. He told the story to Fred's parents. Fred considered this a devastating insult. <sighs> you don't tell someone's parents he cried. Oh, uh, that's what he's upset about? Yep. I thought that he was upset that he told them that his, the belt magic. No, he's upset that the he magic told belt. his parents that he had cried. He's got weird uh, rules. Less is more. Less is more. Don't go out of your way to say anything. On September 26th, Fred appeared in court where he cried and said that the Federales had beat him, stripped him, tortured him with an electrical cattle prod, and stuffed his head into a bucket of urine and murdered his brother. Yeah, right. Big and. The judge didn't care and sent him back to jail. Then a member of Fred's gang started singing to the police. He said the Dons had been involved in drug trafficking but put the killings and assassinations at the feet of the Gaytan and Reyes Pernita clans. Did he really sing all that? Yeah. That's how they do it. Like a show tune? Yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) You know I'm salivating right now. I just don't know the exact words. (laughs) Fred then escaped. Okay. Four Confederates from San Antonio drove to Guadalajara with bribe money. Fred then made it through the gate hidden in a laundry truck. Mm -hmm. He made his way back to Texas where he began traveling with three bodyguards. Law enforcement in San Antonio searched for and prepared for a final gunfight with Fred Carrasco. Bill said, quote, he's got a lot of money and only two or three people who know where he's at. Everybody is afraid of him. And that was reasonable because when Fred was jailed in Guadalajara, his San Antonio gang figured he was finished and started pocketing the profits. Mm. Boy, we're at like the midpoint of a fucking great movie. (laughs) (laughs) This was 12 guys who were pocketing the pockets, pockets, and they went on a list. Gilbert Escobedo was sitting in a bar in San Antonio enjoying a Schlitz beer when a very well-dressed man came in, chatted with the bartender, then walked over to Gilbert, pulled out two pistols, emptied them into Gilbert, and calmly walked out. 
Roy Costano and Agapito Ruiz were sitting in a car when someone walked up and shot Ruiz in the back of the head. Costano uh, was shot in the neck, ran a half mile, then was shot again in the chest. Joe Garces and David Garcia were driving in a renovated 1934 Ford when another car pulled up alongside and shot Garcia in the head. The car overturned. Uh, Grace, uh, wait, Grace, Garces made it a few feet before his life ended. After, Fred went and had a steak dinner. He's taking care of business. Jesus Christ. Fred was back in, in San Antonio and, and, and getting, getting, the, getting get, get, the office in shape. Yeah, he was getting things done. Now Fred's name was all over the papers. San Antonio radio stations, television stations, and newspapers started appealing to secretive informants. So the fucking media is like, hey, come we on, We want snitch. to find out, yeah. Snitch. You get, hey, snitch. Because they just want the scoop. Yeah. Yeah. Officers were warned they shouldn't try to take Fred alone. The FBI tried to promote Freddie to the 10 most wanted list, but Fred made no attempt to flee the state. Seven months went by. So wait, for seven months? He's on the fucking run killing people. He's being talked about, talk about on the radio. Everybody. The cops are breathing down his throat. He did kill all these people, yeah. and he's just chilling. Nobody knows what he looks like. Oh, wow. Except for Bill, who saw him in that cell. Oh, shit. Wait a minute. Wouldn't want to be Bill. <laughs> uh, on July 21st, 1973, Bill got a location on Fred. He was at the El Tejas Motel. They surrounded it. Task force policemen in an anonymous attire sealed off the escape routes, adjusted sniper scopes, climbed into trees, and watched the motel room door for three hours. Then Fred stepped out in a $300 suit. After a moment's hesitation... A San Antonio police inspector called over the loudspeaker, Carrasco. One of the reasons for the hesitation is because they didn't know what he looked like. <laughs> oh, I thought it's because they were like, we didn't talk about who's going to say anything. Who's going to speak? Who wants Who said, to speak? Did anybody say first? Oh, shit. Uh, Who said first? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, no, 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 no. What? Bobby said first. Oh, for God's sake. Bobby, go. Carrasco. Oh, my God. Give it back, Bobby. Mr. Carrasco. Sorry about all that. Fred drew his 357 Magnum. One cop shot a shotgun but missed because Rosa screamed to warn Fred just in time. Then a rifleman shot well, well, Fred. Who needed a warning? Well, Fred, well, he probably didn't know there was it's a like shotgun. like 80 guns. He, but he probably didn't One know of them shotgun. is going to shoot. <laughs> Shit, really? Didn't see that coming. <laughs> a rifleman shot Fred in the shoulder and devastated his left hand. Disarmed and bleeding. Carrasco, Does that mean his left hand was like, oh, no. Oh, my God. I can't take this no more. This is too much. I can't live on. This is, I didn't want this life. I'm going to grab me some Kleenex. Um, disarmed and bleeding, Fred ran a z- blind zigzag that ended 100 yards later with more wounds in his foot and stomach. He swore and spat on the officers who pulled him up and sat him down to wait for an ambulance. He told his old adversary, Bill, all right, you big son of a bitch. You finally got me. Now leave me alone. Television and newspaper reporters arrived. When the ambulance Pulled up, Rosa threw herself on her husband, clutched him, and kissed him. Then she wheeled around and flipped off the cameras. Nice. Fred swore at the ambulance drivers. Well, I mean, you know, pick your spots here a little bit, Freddy boy. <laughs> While he was being booked, Fred Crosco listed his occupation on arrest reports as a farmer and laborer. <laughs> it kind of is. A little bit. Yeah. In the ambulance, Fred told officers that cops had killed Ruiz and Castano. 
and he had a witness who could prove it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Fred's lawyer had many discussions with him while he awaited trial. In all those discussions, not once did Fred mention narcotics. <laughs> Fred wanted to plead guilty to assault, to murder, and accept a life sentence. In return, he wanted all charges against Rosa dropped. It's a love story. Yeah. Rosa was charged with assaulting a police officer. His lawyer didn't want him to plead guilty because despite all that had happened, there was very Wait, little... Wait, uh, was that all she was charged with? Yeah. Is that really... That's not as romantic then, right? Because, I mean, what does assault get you? Not probation? It's all very weird. <laughs> it's just like, no, you won't keep her for four, 40 hours. No. Um, his lawyer did not want him to plead guilty because despite all that had happened, there was very little evidence against him. Fred said he would only go to trial if his lawyers would put in writing that Rosa would go free. His lawyer thought he could beat the charges but wouldn't put it in writing because he knew Fred would kill him if she were, she were convicted. Then I will plead guilty, Fred said. I will take life. I will take life upon life. Rosie must go free. Jimmy, if you are lucky, you will meet a woman you'll die for. For Rosie, I would die. The lawyer cried at the gesture, and Fred put his arm around him and said, Now look who comforts who. Whoa. Jesus. You gonna be alright? I'm fine. <laughs> I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. Are you okay? Yep. Okay. The cop who shot Fred showed up at the jail. His name was <laughs> Lieutenant Dave Flores. He wanted to talk about the two cops Fred said had committed murder. Whoa. Those two cops were Bill and another officer, Manuel Ortiz, a local narcotics cop. Flores asked Fred to produce his witness. Flores was gunning for a higher rank, and he thought getting these two cops was the way to get it. And he had the mayor on his side. The mayor, okay. Mayor San Antonio. Fred wouldn't give up the witness without getting something back. He wanted safety for his family and the witness's family, and he wanted Flores to find the guys who had robbed his two half-brothers' homes while he was in jail in Guadalajara. <laughs> that guy's like, uh, okay, I'll, like, you're a little all over the place right now, Fred. Um, so just focus plus, on a... you got to watch my car. I want you to look me in the eyes for 30 seconds and then say boogaloo Spin around. Simon didn't say. All right, Fred, you what, know what? Fred, okay, Fred. What? Simon didn't say it. You spun around and Simon didn't say it. Flores found the two guys who robbed his brother-in-law's house. They okay. were two addicts. Now, I assume those guys just died. Sure. Fred named the witness. A 26-year-old dealer named Daniel Jaramillo. Jaramillo said he was in the car when Castano and Ruiz were shot, but that he had escaped and hid behind a fence. From there, he heard Castano and Bill... From there, I heard Castano say Bill and Ortiz's names before he was killed. So this is this is the situation. Wait. A car pulls up next to another car and shoots and kills the driver. The car rolls over. The guy in the backseat runs to the fence and jumps over it. And then the cop and then the guys walk up to kill the second guy. And the second guy says... You are Bill Weinbacher and Manuel Ortiz. And then they shoot him. Shut up, asshole. (laughs) It's all very plausible. He just said our real names. Let's go back. This was a murder. (laughs) The press was all over it. 
They were waiting outside uh, at the location where Jaramillo named his killers. So he went into this meeting with the bigwigs, and, right. and, and the press just happened to show up. Sure. Uh-huh. It hit the news the next day, on a Sunday. Ortiz was dazed by the news, but Bill was furious. He was reassigned. The mayor in Flores said Jaramillo was in protective custody. The papers were calling for swift justice. Then on Tuesday, just two days later... Jaramillo was arrested in a motel room with five other guys and 10 pounds of heroin. Whoa. This is a bad witness. Jesus. <laughs> or just, how about a week? Like, take a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah, honestly. Good God, that's all Fred. we need, the mayor said when reporters told him. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, fuck, seriously? Yeah, God damn it. I was golfing and, ah, oh, damn it. It turned out the informant hadn't been put into protective custody since Flores hadn't mentioned him in his report. Flores decided himself not to put the guy in protective custody. Bill then announced to the press that he was one of the cops mentioned and said he would gladly cooperate with the investigation. A day later, later, he stood in the same room with Jaramillo, who didn't even recognize him. The grand jury, after two weeks, said, quote, There isn't a scintilla of evidence against the two officers. This news condemned Flores. After the verdict, Bill and Flores are reassigned. Flores went back in uniform uh, and to a desk job while Bill was back in his old job. But the damage was done. Fred's accusation split the San Antonio Police Department into opposing factions, cast suspicion on the mayor's office, and wrecked careers that took years to build. Just fucking one guy saying some fucking shit. (laughs) Fred's a fucking little son of a bitch. You know, lying can be fun, too. Fred was given a life sentence and sent to Huntsville, Huntsville, where he was known by his prison number 237163. Fred's rap sheet started on May 27, 1955, with a charge of theft under $5 and ended with a life sentence on January 6, 1974, for assault with attempt to murder a police officer in a shootout. <laughs> but Fred wasn't actually done adding to his rap sheet just yet. Jesus Christ, what? Fred. Go into the sunset, bro. Got more shit to do. What the fuck else? He was reported to have been responsible for over 50 killings during his time on the street. He was at the top of the biggest drug-running outfit in South, South Texas, transporting a kilo of heroin a week from Mexico into the United States. How is that even Pretty possible? good for a 34-year-old dude. 34? 30 fucking four. Wow. How do you feel about your accomplishments right now? Not good. This guy is fucking rolling. All right, leave me All out right. of this. Now, he is in prison. Well, still. But... A kilo a week? Yeah. (laughs) Fred spent three weeks in the jailhouse hospital in San Antonio healing from his bullet wounds. There he received preferential treatment and quickly earned the title king of the jail. Word was that on Thanksgiving, his wife Rosa, his brother-in-law, and other relatives came to the jail, and they had dinner with all the trimmings served on table linen. During this time, Fred hatched a plan to escape, but was unable to execute it because he was moved to Huntsville sooner than expected. Um, <clears throat> he was getting a in San Antonio. He was getting a Robin Hood type legend attached to his name. Even though Fred was considered a hardened, extremely dangerous killer, he was assigned to the medium security. Medium facility. security <laughs> killed fifty people. It's gonna be fine. There's certain times when mediums aren't right, and that you this know, fine medium. Five hundred guy, a five hundred pound guy in a medium, not right. Fred in a medium, not right. Uh. 
Then uh, he was assigned to the medium security facility because that was where the system's major hospital was to treat his wounds, and he needed a lot of He's treatment still... over the years. Well, it really fucked like it fucked him all up. Right. So he had to be near near a hospital, and prison authorities thought that this was much more much less of a security risk risk to keep him in medium security than to transport him back and forth from maximum security right, to the for hospital. Right. Health problems. Okay. Oh boy. Because of his wounded condition and his need for a cane, he was assigned to light duty inside the walls as an orderly in the office of prison chaplain Father O'Brien. The once most feared man on the streets of Texas was now emptying waste paper baskets, polishing pews, and mopping floors in the Chapel of Hope. Aw. Fred did not like it. I'm really shocked. Father O'Brien called Fred, quote, a pear-shaped man who neither looked tough nor acted mean. He certainly didn't appear <laughs> Watch to- your mouth, Father O'Fucking Brian. <laughs> This dude's a murderer. Ja, he just looks like a pear-shaped, non-threatening man. Oh, he's very pear-ish. He's, pear, he's pear-shaped. Look at him with his pear-like body. He's got such a pear-like body, I want to take a bite of him. <laughs> Fred said he, quote, uh, Fred said, quote, I feel the need to do my time as best as I can and get back to my family. Sure. Fred was considered a security risk for two reasons. He was dangerous, and he'd killed so many underworld figures in Texas and Mexico that he had lots of enemies in the prison system. Mm -hmm. So he was not allowed to mingle with the general population. Uh, But most of the Latino population in the prison was terrified of Fred Carrasco. Soon enough, Father O'Brien came to know Fred and changed his tune. He said Fred had what he called, quote, a moody quality, (laughs) a controlled inner fury. (laughs) His brood, his brooding silence is like the lull before the gathering storm. Jesus. What? If, well, I've changed my mind a bit. I'm well, I've actually, I've actually met him now. He's, um, and uh, he's a terrifying Very monster. threatening man. Very threatening man. Very, I don't like pears anymore. <laughs> I won't ever eat another pear. I'm afraid of pears. What Father O'Brien and no one else in authority at the time knew was that Fred was using the privacy of the chapel to place long-distance click calls back to his operatives in San Antonio. At Huntsville, Fred went back. And it's amazing that he's able to just place phone calls to a gang. Like, <laughs> what the fuck you think he's going to do? Why is there a phone in yeah, the chapel? Yeah, why is he that- near a phone? <laughs> Fred went back to planning his escape. He picked accomplices, which were needed for his plan. Ignacio Cuevas and Rodolfo Dominguez were more than willing. Uh, Cuevas was 42 years old, serving a 45-year sentence for murder. Dominguez was 27, serving a 15-year sentence for assault with intent to murder. Now, if I'm going to escape and I'm in for 45, I go for the escape. If I'm in for 15, I don't go for the fucking escape. You can get out in seven. Yeah, I agree. Fred would also need outside help. This wasn't difficult to find. Members of the Dons brought three pistols and 150 rounds of ammunition to Huntsville, where the weapons were hidden on the grounds of an associate prison director. The home was across the street from the prison. Oh, boy. Lawrence Hall was a trusted inmate. I mean, you could just imagine how unexpected... Like, the the guys involved in this medium security prison are not ready for this shit at all. (laughs) Father O'Brien isn't ready to, like... When push comes to shove, man up. He is certainly not. Yeah. Uh, Lawrence Hall was a trusted inmate at Huntsville. That means he could take jobs others could not. At this time, he was working as a cook for 
said associate prison director. So he's working at the house where this uh-huh. stuff is buried or whatever. Fred approached, approached him, and for $2,000, Hall agreed to bring the weapons in. Fred, Fred's family paid Hall, Hall's family the money, and they were off and running. So they have guns in the prison. Hold on, not yet. Hall got a canned ham from the prison commissary. He made ham for the prison official's family, then left the remaining ham to spoil. He then told the supervisor that he had to return the spoiled meat to the commissary and place the weapons in the meat can, covered it with the spoiled ham, and passed through the prison entrance without being searched. Holy shit. Fucking 70s. Well, who wants to search bad ham? Uh, no one wants to touch the smelly ham. Uh, I don't want to touch smelly no, no, ham. No, no, you're good, you're good, you're good. What do you have under there? Oh, that fuck. looks like a trigger, but that ham also smells real bad. Was nobody like, why are you bringing the shitty ham back in? Yeah. Nobody, well, nobody was like, would throw out the ham. Yeah. Where's, why are you bringing back shitty ham? You know what? Hey, hey boss, I got to bring this spoiled ham back over to the prison. Wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> That worked well, so why not try something similar with the ammunition? He took a gallon can of peaches to the prison official's house, took the label off, drained the contents, uh, then refilled it with bullets. Just, he, <laughs> those bullets are going to smell delicious. <laughs> then he took the can back to the prison, telling security he was exchanging the peaches for pears. So what I'm doing here, I know you guys are probably looking at me, is I'm actually running these peaches back in now because I want to exchange them with the pears. So in case any of you guys were looking at me going like, hey, I realized that he just had those peaches. Why does he have those peaches? And now he's going back in. I'm just because I'm going to do, "Ah, why am I talking so much? I'm going to do a pear switch with the peaches. So there's no, uh, what? Why are you guys even looking at me weird? No, just go. Oh, okay. Sorry. Thanks. Once inside the prison, the pistols and bullets were passed through a series of inmates until they reached Fred. On March 28th, 1970- So Fred now has guns and a shitload of bullets inside the jail, <laughs> and Father O'Brien once thought he was just a pear-shaped non-threat. <laughs> On March 28, 1974, the U.S. Department of Justice and the DEA sent a letter to the Texas Department of Corrections saying the agencies had received information that an escape attempt would be made in the near future by Fred Carrasco, probably because the guns have been passed through a bunch of inmates, and one of them was like, I don't want anything to fucking do with this. This information came from four separate informants. Nothing was done. Wait, they, they knew that he had probably had guns? Well, they, they, I assume that from the guys on the street, they learned that he was going to try to break out. Right. And the guys on the street probably didn't want him to break out because he just killed a bunch of guys Right, yeah, street. yeah, right. So they told, the, they told the Department of Justice and the DEA. That he was going to escape, not that he had guns. Well, they had to have known he had guns because they... Because they know, already know he's going to escape. Because they, they were the ones who gave him the guns. They brought him to the prison, remember? Uh, I mean, you can't... <laughs> How do you prepare? It's the 70s. It's the 70s. <laughs> the Texas legislator created the Wyndham School District in the Texas Department of Corrections in 1968. Its purpose was to bride, provide educational and vocational opportunities for prison inmates that would help them once they returned to life outside the walls. Mm-hmm. At the Walls Unit in Huntsville, where Fred and the other inmates were located, there was a group of about 15 teachers and librarians. 
The library was on the top floor of a rectangular three-story building made out of reinforced concrete faced with masonry bricks with steel roof trusses. It was unintentionally built like a fortress. Inside, there was a classroom, a library, restrooms, administration, offices, and storage areas. And there was only one entrance to the third floor complex. One had to go through a pair of plate glass doors that opened to a concrete <laughs> ramp. The ramps turned right and left and led down to the recreation yard. Because they didn't want recre- the recreation area to disturb the student prisoners, the windows were all bricked up. <laughs> Quote, we asked them not to do that, and it was still done, said one teacher. Well... <laughs> I mean that it there's so wait so essentially what he now has is he's going to have if he wanted if we're headed in this direction uh-huh. he's really just got I mean he's just got what whatever I mean he's just got one way in and one way out so they, he's really just got to defend that yeah they essentially built a a bunker for him yeah on they built top him of a the bunker. prison yeah all right this is the bunker that Peach has built. Okay, so one way in, one way out. There's not even a fire escape. Director Dewey Morgan complained to the wardens in 1972 that, quote, all any prisoner has to do is secure that front door and they have the building. Keep your goddamn voice down. They'll hear you. <laughs> but, but the Texas Department of Corrections Director James Estelle was quoted in the Temple Daily Telegram saying, quote, I'm safer in every part of my prisons than most of you are on the streets of your communities. All right. On Wednesday, July 24th, 1974, Estelle was giving a speech in front of the Rotary Club in San Antonio. He ended his speech with, quote, The human chemistry alone of 17,000 inmates and 2,500 employees dictates that errors will occur and until the citizens of Texas, through the legislature, say otherwise, the Texas Department of Corrections, what we call the TDC, will continue to be run by your employees, not by your inmates. Thunderous applause, <clears throat> jerking off, that kind of stuff. Um, well, gee, really? At the exa- That's just kind of what happened. That's the next step after a standing ovation is standing masturbating. Well, I hope so. Have you ever had a standing masturbate? Oh, yeah, a couple times. Man, that must be awesome. At the exact same time in Huntsville, a blue three fifty seven Magnum revolver was fired in the library at Huntsville by Fred Carrasco as he shouted, stop right there or I'll kill you at the 46-year-old principal, Novelia Pollard. The opposite occurred. She and everyone else dove for cover or scrambled behind bookshelves. Or that, whatever, do one of the two. (laughs) Two workers in an office pushed a large file cabinet against the office door, which was rather pointless because the office was constructed of glass partitions. Oh, Jesus. That's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Several inmates guilty of minor prison rules and fractions were working off their write-ups by polishing the rails on the ramp. When the gun fired, they all leapt over the railing and ran down the ramp. In the classroom, about 50 inmate students were taking a test or taking typing lessons. Rudy Dominguez ran in with his pistol. The only guard assigned to the complex hauled himself up into a crawl space in the false ceiling. There you go. That's what you're supposed to do in that situation. <laughs> that, that's, that, now, you may laugh. That's part of his training. If there's a threat, get in the crawl space. Well, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's different parts of training, but one part of training is, is called uh, fuck this shit. Yeah, so it's called the Saddam Husseining. Yeah, and yeah. you just the go second that a legit threat is there, hide forever. The third inmate, Ignacio Cuevas, leapt up with his own gun. Cuevas was the only one who attended classes in the school. 
art classes. He was pretty good and ended up selling paintings uh, for as much as $100. That's a lot for a fucking painting. Yeah. Maybe reconsider. Cuevas wrapped a chain from his calf, unwrapped a chain from his calf, and wrapped it around the door handles. Now no one could get in or out. Fred raised his pants leg and peeled yards and yards of tape off. Stuck to his leg were the hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, boy. Uh, some people to this day think that Fred's leg was not truly injured and that he was limping the whole time as a ruse, knowing that he was going to try in a shootout to get out of a prison. So, so that he, he had always been limping because he knew he was going to wrap ammunition limp? around his leg. Oh, wow. Jesus. That can't be. I don't know. Fred threatened to kill two women unless everyone who was hiding came out, and they all did. Two prison guards ran up the ramp, and Fred fired three shots through the plate glass doors. They were injured by splintered glass and concrete chips from the walls. Now that everyone, and then they ran off. Now that everyone was gathered around, Fred said, All right, everyone take it easy. Do as we say, and no one will get hurt. We're committed to a plan to leave this prison. We have nothing to lose, and we're willing to die if we have to. If the warden hurts one of us, we're going to kill one of you. Uh, Which kind of contradicts the first part when he said, everyone take it easy. (laughs) Everybody relax. Nobody's going to get hurt. Okay? They kill one of us, one of you dies. Wait, you just said. Huh? It just seemed like. I don't think we asked for questions. Okay. Yeah. Within minutes, Fred was on the phone to the prison warden. Hal Husbands. (laughs) Mr. Husbands? Sounds like an advice column. This is my wife, Mrs. Husbands? Yeah. This is my wife, Mrs. Wife. I'm Mr. Husbands. (laughs) Have you met our boy's son? (laughs) Fred told him he was releasing the inmates. He then hung up on the warden and screamed at the prisoners to get out. They bolted. Now there were 11 civilians and four inmate prisoners left as hostages. Some inmates were still uh, in the prison dining room which was directly below the library. Okay. They were finishing lunch or doing cleanup work, banging pots and pans, dishwashing, etc. Fred and his crew thought it sounded like guards were trying to tunnel up through the floor and demanded they stop or they would shoot the hostages. Uh, the hostages was like, I-, I think those are pots and pans. The warden went to the dining room and told everyone to shut up and shut it down. Yeah, good. Good call. News would uh, it would hit the news that night and the radio and papers the next morning, but the country didn't pay much attention. Well, you know, this was the same day that the U.S. Supreme Court ordered Richard Nixon to turn over his Oval Office tape recordings. Oh boy! So Nixon was about to go. It was a scorching hot and Nixon day. Nixon was Texas. like, "Oh, you heard about this uh, I- uh, this uh, inmate problem? What's going on down there in uh, the maybe, Texas? Uh, uh, feels like uh, we're uh, we're not paying attention to the right story right Texas, now. there are <laughs> men uh, holding peel hostage. I don't do anything. It was a scorching hot day in Texas. Tropical heat in the mid nineties. Uh huh. Except in the air conditioned library at Huntsville. Mm, 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 mm. Prison officials had no idea how many guns Fred had, how many prisoners were uh, taking part, or how many hostages were there. They were in the dark. Within minutes, they were speaking on the phone. Fred said, if the guards charged, he would kill all the prisoners. One look at his rap sheet, and prison officials agreed not to do anything. During this brief exchange, Dominguez fired two shots into the ceiling. Fuck, because fuck it. I mean, why not? Fuck it. It's called making a point. Fuck it. Fred's just chatting away. Bing, bing. That's what we mean. Hey, fuck yeah. 
The hostages were then taken into the corner of the library and grouped into a tight semicircle of chairs. This way, they were lined up. <laughs> you, know, for- you know what would be amazing is if there was like one librarian who had just fallen asleep and then woke up for that and was like, shh, hey, shh, can we keep, what the fuck's going on? Excuse me. Oh, God, I'm sorry. It's just very loud. It's I very- realize, you know what, I realize you've taken hostages <laughs> and you're taking over the library. Fred. But let's keep it down. It's still a library. Fred, I don't want to sound like a stick in the mud, but this is still a library. This is still a library. So I, I want you to do what you need to do. I understand yes. you're going to kill us if they try to dig uh-huh. through here. But can we just use really library voices? Yeah. No bang, bang. No bang, bang. No bang, bang. Thanks. Well, you can't shoot me because it's a library. <laughs> Uh, so they put him in a tight semicircle of chairs. This way they were lined up for rapid fire execution. Fred told them, quote, it's not my plan to shoot anyone until I'm ready. Fred. It's very contradictory. At this point, like somebody whispers to the other, like, just don't even pay attention to the first half. <laughs> At this point, don't even pay attention to the first half of what he says. While Fred was calm and cool, Dominguez was pacing like a lunatic. Gun pointed at the hostages, thumb on the cocked hammer the entire time. Every... Sound set Cuevas and Dominguez off. Cuevas got particularly excited about pigeons and their flapping wings. What? He raced up to the attic at least eight times the first day to make sure the birds were not being scared off by guards attempting to enter. Cuevas at one point described by a fellow prisoner as, quote, having an IQ just about room temperature during winter. I don't, I don't know what that means. Yeah, that guy needs... We need to find out what that guy's IQ is. Room temperature during winter. I mean, I guess it's. I, I, <laughs> now I feel know, like it's average. I feel like a moron who doesn't know how to describe IQ just called someone stupid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I, that guy is the guy who's got the room temperature during winter IQ. If anyone's got, if anyone's got the room temperature IQ during winter, it's that guy. Meanwhile, Fred was talking in an almost. Natural manner with no sign of fear or anxiety. This is his calm zone. This is where he like feels. Yeah, no, daddy's back. It's like he's in a, a nice warm Daddy's pool. back, yeah. yeah. Fred requested Father O'Brien come up to the complex so all negotiations could be done through him. But Fred has conditions. First, the priest had to remove his collar and have his hands cuffed in front of him. Fred was an atheist. <laughs> oh, so wow. He didn't want the priest to come up with his collar. Oh, wow. <laughs> Father O'Brien. Is that like when you take a dog's collar off for a priest? Is he just kind of just like running around, like doing kind of like kind of sinning all over a little bit? It's like, yeah, I let him off leash for I let him off leash for a little while so he could just sin around here for a while. You let him go fucking for a little yeah, while. Yeah, he's over there. He's, he's masturbating yeah. and uh, smoking some weed. Yeah, there he is. I'll what put his collar on in a minute. It'll about be an hour. About an hour. Taking the father down to the fa- the father run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going down to priest park. <laughs> So Father O'Brien agreed and became the messenger. When, um, when, fr- when Father O'Brien arrived at the complex, he looked at Fred and yelled, Fred, what in the hell are you doing? And Fred shrugged. What? Oh, this? <laughs> no, it's a thing. Oh, here you know, we go. I'm just so bored. Not a hello? I don't even get a hello? Fred then calmly explained that this was an escape. Quote, we have nothing left to lose. I will die if necessary for my liberty. If I die today or tomorrow, it's all the same to me. Next, Fred decided to look for the guard who had scrambled into the crawl space. They ordered him down and fired into the ceiling. Father O'Brien begged him to come down, as did the warden over the loudspeaker. Finally, he did. 
Jesus. I mean, that has got to be really awkward. He was at this point shirtless because it had been so hot up there. Buddy, he got really comfortable up there. He's like, sorry, the game's at halftime. Is there any way? Man, it's nice up there. You guys like saunas? Woo! Oh, fuck. Sorry I got naked in the crawl space and compromised the mission for two days. Uh, they They tied the guard to the front door and terrorized him. For days. Ugh. Days because the Huntsville prison siege, as it would become known, would last 11 days. Oh, my God. The hostages all thought they were going to die. The more prison officials and lawmen learned about Fred's advanced, detailed planning, the more impressed they became. Regarding food, the three had brought food from the prison commissary up. Canned peaches, pears, canned meat, Vienna sausages, and they had put... All the food in the library behind the books. Where nobody would find them. (laughs) (laughs) But he got it. I mean, how great. There had to have been a library. It was just like, what's Vienna sausages back here? Hmm. (laughs) Strange that cornflakes are on the shelf. It's a little strange. Uh, Who wrote cornflakes? (laughs) Kellogg's. Wait a minute. Hold on. Uh, so when the prisoners took over, they were ready basically for a long picnic, right? Yeah. Fred had already planned what to do with all the hostages. He had everything worked out except for the getting out of their part. Ah, well, you know. You know, that's a little... Whatever, you get caught... We'll get there when we get there. You get caught up in the setup. You do. Yeah. You do. Fred tormented all the hostages, threatening to shoot them or blow up the building with a bomb by using information in books and a chemistry set that was also in the library. Mm. So what he was threatening to do was to take out books and slowly read them about how to build a bomb and then get the chemistry set out, which I'm sure contained uh, stuff that would uh, allow you to make explosives, and then make a bomb. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I would say, Noam, if if you have prison in the title, no matter what the quantifier is, don't have a chemistry set that a convict can get access to. At one point, Father O'Brien couldn't take being a messenger anymore and gave himself up as a hostage, thinking he could be of more use helping the hostages. That's a bad move. Wait, so he was just like, I'm done being, I'm done being the liaison. I'm just I'm one of them now. I'm not going to run your little messages anymore, Freddy boy. All right, Fred. I'll just sit down here with the peoples. <laughs> All right. Notice the shift in character? As the days wore on, Fred forced the hostages to make demands for him. The demands always had unreasonable deadlines and could not be met. When they, weren't, when they weren't met, Fred would fly into a screaming rage. At one point, he asked for, quote, suitable clothing for the three of us. When asked further about the clothes, he said, I want clothes, underwear, socks, razor blades, soap, deodorant, and face lotion. For himself, he ordered Hart, a Schaffner, and Mark's label, rather expensive, and Nunbush shoes. Then he placed the exact order for Cuevas and Dominguez, but he said he wanted his suit to be twice as expensive as theirs. <laughs> he said, if the clothes are not good, I will kill the hostages. Jesus Christ. <laughs> good God. We're having a fashion show up here, gentlemen. These, these hostages are probably like, you know, I mean, it's just getting shittier and shittier. We are going to die. We're, we're going to die eventually. He just wants good suits. His demands are not good. Prison officials uh, delivered that. They also delivered 17 steak dinners from La Cire, one of the city's finer restaurants. The ribeyes and fillets were all cooked medium, served with baked potatoes and tossed salad. 
and cost seventy eight seventy five at group rates. And they had seventeen. Is that for them and all the hostages? Yeah. I mean, do you yeah, trust one, two, three? Yeah. Do you well, tr- no, someone didn't get one, right? Because there's fifteen. Probably the security guard who's taped to a door with lipstick yeah, and cuts it. all over him. Two people sound like they didn't get it. Two people. Two, uh, but I mean, do you really trust? Like, I would be like, now, Fred, come on, make sure the other people eat these too. You don't just get seventeen steaks. <laughs> Fred next demanded three M16 rifles. Six bulletproof vests, three bulletproof helmets, five full ammunition clips, along with 100 rounds of ammunition for each rifle, and three walkie-talkies. Okay. He then said he would kill the hostages if they didn't start getting this stuff. Okay. Anything. So then they give him the stuff. Let's cut, to, <laughs> let's cut to after they've given him all this stuff. We don't need to hear the sort of lead up to the, when they gave him the stuff. They gave him the stuff. <laughs> All right, hold on. You're talking too fast. So three M16. Uh huh. Yeah. Let me just make sure I got all this because uh, we want to make sure launcher. we get. How do you spell launcher? Okay. And L-A. bulletproof vests. Uh-huh. Got it. Uh-huh. So you can get out easily. Now, do the suits go over this or under this? Uh oh. Okay. Hours became days, and the days came to a week. Fred's resolve began to wane, and his level of agitation increased. Then he heard on a radio broadcast that an arrest warrant had been issued for Rosie as an accomplice. Oh boy. Fred freaked out, and Reuben Montemayor was brought in to act as his attorney, even though they had never met, and Fred already had an attorney. Now, his new attorney was involved in the negotiations, but his old attorney got involved too later. At one point, Fred somehow ended up as part of a four-way phone conversation with his original lawyer, James Gillespie, (laughs) the editor of the San Antonio Light, and a newscaster, Will Sinclair of KITE Radio. What? The kite. On the call, when asked where he got the guns and ammunition, Fred said he paid 25000 to the security chief for the entire Department of Corrections, Major Andrew Murdoch Jr. <laughs> Murdoch just happened to be the guy who assigned Fred to his janitorial duties. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. The ruse worked. Prison officials spent tons of time and energy defending Murdoch to the press instead of working to get the hostages out. <laughs> Fred is really... He's kind of like the Dennis Rodman of like prison PR. He just really knows it's how to manipulate the media. It's such a shit. The conversation is dictated by Fred. Oh, fuck, it's just amazing. Several days in, hostage Dr. Glenn Johnson collapsed on the floor. He appeared to be having a heart attack. Fred demanded a doctor be sent up, but prison officials said no. Fred finally, And any doctor would be like, no, no, no. Doctor, I need a doctor. No. Fred finally allowed the doctor to be removed by stretcher. He was released from the hospital the next day. Shortly after that, a second woman faked a heart attack, and she was also released by Fred. <laughs> but she, kept at the, she was kept at the prison hospital to avoid detection of the lie, which further pissed off Fred. Some of the hostages contemplated suicide using pills for headaches, that hostage Steve Robertson had with him. Then one of the inmate hostages ran for the glass door, jumped through it, and dashed down the ramp and made his escape. Wow. That guy's fucking awesome. That guy's got fucking balls. Fred was losing his grip on the situation, and it was showing. After that escape, Fred made a demand for an armored car getaway. Armored getaway car. The demand was given approval by Texas Governor Dolph Briscoe, they had, a, they had a governor named Dolph. Mayor Dolph Briscoe? Governor Dolph. Governor Dolph Briscoe? Yeah. 
I mean, I wouldn't even put that in a script. Yeah, no, that just that does that doesn't sound anywhere near reality. Soon after the car was delivered into the prison courtyard, Fred revealed he needed the car because they were planning to flee to Cuba and to appeal to Fidel Castro for aid in their cases. How how will they get to Cuba? So they're going to drive in the car. How are they going to drive in a fucking car <laughs> to fucking Cuba? Look, we don't know if Fred knows what a map is, but he wanted a car to go to Cuba. <laughs> they better that I mean it's hard to make an armored car that's also buoyant. The FBI and Texas Rangers also sensed Fred was losing it. They started coming up because he wanted to drive through water. <laughs> they started coming up with options to end the siege before all the hostages ended up dead. One of the ideas was to blow up the brick walls with plastic explosives or use rolling shields to move in sniper teams. Both ideas were rejected due to the risk of human life. To human life. On day 11, Fred Crosco allowed the hostages to call loved ones to say goodbye. Ugh. Then the women and Father O'Brien were selected to escort him on his departure to Cuba. One big problem with his escape was the ramp. It was actually four connected ramps that required prisoners to turn four separate times before reaching the exit. The spiraling hallway kept snipers from being able to shoot in, but also left Fred with the problem of not being able to see around corners when he was making his escape. Then Father O'Brien made a suggestion. Use the hostages as a shield. Well, fa- I mean, excuse me, Father. Can we talk to you over here for a over fucking second, here. Father? Here now. Hey, Father, it's us, the hostages. What the fuck is your fucking problem? We thought that we could help him out. You thought we could shut the fuck up? Oh, me looking charms. Well, I just thought my point was mainly don't use the religious folk as a human shield, right? I wasn't saying the hostages, but I was just saying, you know, don't use a father, you know. Oh. <laughs> uh. What became known as the Trojan Taco was born. Oh, my God. Certainly, it's a racist term, but that's what it was called by the media. A Trojan Taco? The Trojan Taco. They constructed a portable barrier using two chalk boards taped together and reinforced by books to serve as buffers for bullets. The idea was to use the remaining nine hostages as an external shield, on the outside would be Fred. On the inside would be Fred, Cuevas, and Dominguez with some of the women. And the exterior nine would be handcuffed together on the outside. He warned that if the prison guards tried anything, he would shoot the women with him inside. Hey, Father O'Brien, I just want to say thanks again for the great suggestion. Oh, look at this! It's like a taco with people in it. You fucking asshole, <laughs> Father O'Brien. Um, the idea was to roll the barricade out the doors and to the car where he would transfer two hostages to the armored car and then drive away to freedom. It's a flawless plan. Ugh. It's flawless. Talk about wanting to be last picked. Meanwhile, the guards came up with their own way to deal with the Trojan taco. While Fred was building his, his Trojan taco, the guards began to develop their own plan. They called in the Huntsville Fire Department. The plan was to use a high-pressure hose on the convicts and hostages to set them off guard and push them off their feet to gain control without allowing the hostages to be harmed. Here's something that what, you might what not realize. What is fucking happening? If you, if you have a gun, right, and yeah. you're in a, a taco, and you get knocked over, 
you got that gun doesn't work because you're sideways I, what how do you like I understand someone pitching that <laughs> but going ahead with it yeah all right prison guards hid in the corridor between the library and the door to exit around a corner they waited with their hose oh my god with a hose this plan can't go wrong this plan cannot go right what what's your guess of what happens I think innocent people die because he's still like it just is going to be a shit show. I, I mean, people are going to die. It's not going to go well, and and Fred's going to die too. I think everybody's going to die. <laughs> I think every. I think they're all going to die. That's what I think. As Fred Cuevas and Dominguez rounded the ramp, the guards blasted them with high pressure hoses. Now what? The Trojan taco began to tip. Yeah, I see that happening. It was all going to work. But just when the taco was about to tumble, the hose ruptured, causing the Trojan taco to right itself. Okay. So the uh, the hose didn't work. The hose. I mean, they, they brought a bad hose. They brought a bad hose. Check your hoses, gentlemen. Yeah. We are going into a hostage situation. Check the hoses. But other hoses kept spraying. They succeeded in separating the outer hostages from the rest using the water hoses. But this just succeeded in making a terrible situation worse. Now the only hostages were in the Trojan taco with the criminals who had the guns. Gunshots rang out. The first coming from inside the taco. The inmates were executing the hostages. Then the officers shot in response, thinking they were being shot at. Fred then shot himself in the head. Dominguez shot two hostages in a panic before taking a bullet from one of the officers. Cuevas was pinned to the ground by one of the now-dead hostages. He was uninjured and unable to fire his handgun or do anything else because of the body on top of him. Texas Rangers and FBI agents had been hit by bullets, but they were all wearing bulletproof vests. The small corridor was filled with the smell of gunpowder residue, smoke, and blood. Father O'Brien was seriously injured. The two dead were Yvonne Becetta, a 57-year-old prison school teacher, and Judy Stanley, a 43-year-old librarian. Both women had volunteered to accompany the convicts as hostages inside the armored car. Ignacio Cuevas was put on trial for capital murder and received the death penalty. He was put to death by the state of Texas on May 23, 1991. His last meal was chicken dumplings, steamed rice, sliced bread, black-eyed peas, and iced tea. Cuevas' last words were, quote, I'm going to... That was some good food. (laughs) His last words were, fuck, I should have ordered a taco. (laughs) Oh, my God, what was I thinking? (laughs) I wanted pizza. His last words were, quote, I'm going to a beautiful place. Okay, warden, roll them. Whoa. How do you, what do you think you're going to a beautiful place? Uh, That is, those are some, I'm kind of a fan of those last words. It's not bad. Yeah. Roll them. Roll them. Action! The governor, the director of prisons Estelle, and warden husbands went on to be ridiculed for the outcome of the 11-day ordeal. The deaths of the hostages was thought to have been avoidable and went under review for their decisions made uh, they took during the heat. Uh, uh, they, they took... Uh, were made during... A fucking autocorrect. Whatever. They took heat over the outcome. Okay. But in many... Uh, many in the corrections you know, system around the country thought that it was a miracle that anyone had survived. Yeah. 
After the shootout, a few reporters were allowed inside where the nude bodies of Carrasco and Dominguez lay on the bloody concrete. Ann James, a reporter for the Houston Post, was denied entry because of her sex. Sure. Can't see a penis. I mean, She's a lady. It's a dead, dead She guy. won't be able to dead separate dead. it. Her woman mind won't be able to separate it, Dave. These are naked men. You know how she'll be? She can't report in that situation. You're right. You're she right. doesn't have a man mind. Bill Weinbacher, the San Antonio cop who had been after Fred for a decade, said, quote, I think he was crazy. He wanted to be the kind of guy they would sing about in beer joints. Toward the end, a UPI reporter was comparing Fred to Al Capone, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Clyde Barrow. The song Muerte de Fred Gomez Carrasco has been sung in bars around San Antonio and elsewhere ever since. So he got his dream. Yeah. Well, 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 my friend. You feel good? Holy shit. You like her? You Jesus. Like, you like her? Huh? Huh? You like? You like? I think it's uh, the only thing. Uh, I'm glad Father O'Brien's okay, and I'm glad he got hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Putting a lot of this on him. Yep. It's pretty epic. <laughs> How Jesus. That a movie? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Fred Colasco. Christ. Happy birthday, everybody. Oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth, you know, from this uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy, the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow September 13th, London September 15th, Dublin September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham September 20th, Bristol September 22nd, and Cardiff September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th, Adelaide November 16th, Canberra, November 17th, Brisbane, November 18th, and then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it after it. Let's see you there. Hey there, people listening to The Dollop. Uh, this is Gareth. Yes, the same guy. I Listen, I have a new podcast called We're Here to Help that I'm doing with my friend Jake Johnson. It's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't, but we try to help people with problems that are important to them. You can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts, and it is out right now. So go listen to We're Here to Help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help. 